Uh, Our scripture reading today is John chapter 1, verses 1 through 5, and our scripture reader is David Wright. In honor of God's word, would you please stand? Listen as I read. In the beginning was the word, and the word was with God, and the word was God. He was in the beginning with God. All things were made through him. And without him was not anything made that was made. In him was life, and the life was the light of men. The light shines in the darkness, and the darkness has not overcome it. This is the word of the Lord. And so we're, we're looking at John chapter 1. And, uh, and we're going to try to uh, at least consider some, some ideas of, of what uh, John, the, the gospel writer, what, what he was trying to, to say, what he was trying to communicate uh, in, these, in these first verses of, of his gospel account. And uh, as you just heard, uh, if you were to read through the rest of chapter one, uh, you, you see that, that John is talking uh, about Jesus throughout the chapter, uh, and he's talking about Jesus as the word. And he's talking about Jesus as the light. Um, light is a really big theme uh, during this time in, in, in the church calendar. Um, there's a, a day called Epiphany, which, which means revealing or revelation. And uh, historically, the uh, Epiphany is 12 days after Christmas. And it, it correlates with uh, what is assumed to be the day that the three uh, magi or the three wise men uh, that, that Jesus, the baby, was revealed to the wise men. And, uh, and so uh, over these days, uh, you know, our, our, the, the, the color that we associate with it is, is the color yellow or gold. And, uh, and part of that invites this, this sense of light, uh, this recognition that there's a, a revelation, a revealing that has happened, uh, that is happening in the person of, of Jesus. And so for these 12 days, you know, light is a, is a good thing to be thinking about, that light has broken into the world. Uh, we celebrate that light. We're going to talk a little bit about light uh, next Sunday. Uh, but this morning, I want to focus on what John is doing by calling Jesus the Word. Um, and so, uh, what is he, what, what's the goal? Well, I want you to see that John's not shooting from the hip with this comment. It's, it's not something that he's inventing. It's not something that he's originating. Uh, he uses this word, the word, on purpose. And the reason he does it is because it is packed full of meaning. It is loaded with meaning. And I want to point to at least two groups uh, and, and, and kind of at least uh, a little bit try to pull back the covers on what would be, uh, what would be going through the mind of some of the listeners who, who would, or some of the readers who would see this in John's gospel in the first century. So one group would be the Jews. If the Jews saw the phrase, the word, uh, that would have been rooted in their faith. That, that would have been rooted in, in their history. The, the word for a Jewish reader was a very big deal. And, and maybe you are aware of this, or maybe you've never thought about this. Um, but the majority of Christians in the first century were Jewish. Uh, the vast majority of, of, of people that responded to the gospel news were, were Jewish people. In, in, Acts, in Acts chapter 2, when, when Peter preaches a sermon and there's a, a massive response, the indication is that the majority of the people in that crowd are, are, are Jewish people. 
Um, and there's, a, there's a, a lot of things that we could say about this, but the first Christians were Jews. They, they were Jews who were waiting for the Messiah. They were waiting for the promise to be kept. And then the promise was kept, and it just, it just clicked. If you were to read through the book of, Rome, uh, the book of Acts, you're going to see sermon after sermon after sermon where the, the Peter or Paul, they're, they're, they're preaching these sermons to groups of Jews, and they're just referencing all kinds of things back in the Old Testament. And they're just being like, remember that? See how Jesus did it? Remember that? See how Jesus did it? And for a lot of Jews, the lights went on. And all the promises of the Old Testament, all the longing of the Messiah, it, 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 the, the lights turned on. And they saw uh, that Jesus was the one that they were waiting for. And so the majority of the Christians in the first century were Jewish people. A lot of John's readers would have been Jewish. And for a Jewish person, uh, he, this, is, this would be a no-brainer. What happens when God speaks? Stuff happens. What happens when God talks? Things move. The word. The word. In the Old Testament, uh, you know, it's what the Jewish people centered their lives on. They knew the Old Testament as the word of God. John doesn't just say the word. He also slips in the phrase, in the beginning was the word. He's connecting that to the first phrase of the Torah, of the Pentateuch. In the first five books of the Old Testament, this idea of in the beginning was God. Well, John steals that phrase. And he says, in the beginning was the word. And he's associating this with Jewish ideas. Creation by the word alone. God spoke the world into existence. That would have been a no-brainer for a Jewish person. Genesis 1.1, the opening declaration. In the beginning, God. Uh, there's an author and, and artist, Shai Lin, and he said, if, if you find Genesis 1-1 believable, then nothing that comes after it is inconceivable. If, if, if you believe Genesis 1-1, then, then, then everything's game. Everything is, is possible. That declaration, in the beginning, God, was like, it was like their anthem. And so John's phrase would get their attention. But John does something new with it. John now adds that in the beginning was the Word, and then he goes on to say that the Word is Jesus. In the second half of chapter 1, in verses 14 through 29, that, that's what he reveals, is that all this language of the Word, he's talking about Jesus. In the beginning was Jesus, and Jesus was with God. Jesus actually is God, he says in verse 18. And so John, John takes this, this idea, this phrase, the word, and he connects it to all of these very natural connections for the Jewish people. Things that would have, in a sense, been uh, triggers for them. In the beginning was the word. Two phrases, both of great significance for the Jewish people. Now John says, in the beginning was the word, and that word is Jesus. Jesus was with God. Jesus is God. Well, there's a second group that I want to point to, and that would be Greek readers. And when a, if a Greek reader saw the phrase, the word, what, what would go through a Greek reader's mind? I'd said the majority were Jewish. The, the, the majority of first century Christians were Jewish, but not all of them. Not all of John's readers 
uh, were, were Jewish. I mean, it was written in Greek. Uh, Greek readers had access to these, to these letters, to these accounts. And as the gospel spreads, many non-Jews believed. And many Greeks believed. And John here is intentionally using an idea that was part of an ongoing philosophical debate. The Greek word for word is logos. Logos. It's uh, got the same root word as logic or reason, uh, philosophy. It's, it's, it's associated with those ideas. And if you haven't heard, you know, Greeks were into philosophy. Maybe, maybe you've heard that rumor. It's, it's true. They were intensely into Greek philosophy. And since we have the young kids with us today, I thought it'd be great to spend a little bit of time talking about Greek philosophy, because uh, I thought they'd be really into that. Uh, but give, give me a minute on this, because I think it actually is, is helpful. So for Greeks, th- this word logos um, was rooted in, in a philosophical debate that had been going on uh, for, for a long time. Uh, Heraclitus, maybe you've heard of the uh, philosopher Heraclitus. If you haven't, you're not alone. Uh, but he's kind of the OG uh, in regard to this, this discussion of the, the logos. He's the original gangster. Uh, he, 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 really, he, really got, he really got the conversation started. Uh, he was a loner, a little bit of an interesting guy. Um, but he spent a lot of time on this issue, this idea of the logos. What, what is that about? And his conclusion, I'm paraphrasing here, but his conclusion was basically the problem with the world is that there is a logos. There, there is a word. There is a logic that holds everything together. But people are too lazy to go figure it out. We're, we're, we're lost in the sauce. We're wandering around. He actually says something like, uh, my experience of the average person is they're about as attentive to the most important things when they're awake as they are when they're asleep. He doesn't have a high view of our uh, philosophical intentions as, as human beings. And he says, it's, uh, there, there is a, there's a logos out there. There's a word out there. There's a logic out there, and it holds everything together. But most people are too lazy to go get it. However, Heraclitus is a complicated guy. He also believed that you couldn't really find it because the world is in a constant flux. He, he, he's, uh, I think the thing he's most famous for is he actually had this idea that you cannot step into the same river twice. That if you step into a river, you know, like you experience that, if you, if you step out and then step back in, all the water's different. You, 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 you can't step, that's his quote, you cannot, basically, you cannot step into the same river twice. And so he's, he, he has this idea that the world is in flux you can't really figure out anything because as soon as you figure something out, the world has changed. So the search is actually meaningless. So he says there is something out there. Most people are too lazy to go after it, but you can't really find it, it because everything's changing. The world is in flux. And so it actually is a meaningless pursuit. Uh, and there's evidence that these ideas, understandably, lead to, to, to nihilism. Um, Nietzsche loved Heraclitus. Um, it, it leads to this idea that nothing, nothing matters. Everything is empty. There's no absolutes. Well, if you fast forward a few uh, hundred years, uh, after Plato died, 
Uh, there, there's you know, a number of philosophical schools that, that popped up, but two that were kind of interesting in this regard. Um, there, there's an author who summed up two of these schools this way. One of, the, one of the schools that he pointed to were the Stoics. And, you know, we use the word Stoic here uh, in our current culture, and it's kind of a dumbed-down version of, of Stoics. Um, but if you were to try to, to, to give a summary idea of how the Stoics functioned in the world, uh, here, here's how one author said you could, you could summarize them. The Stoics said, there's no meaning to life, so just, just do your best. There's no knowable, ultimate meaning to life. So, so just, just do your best. And if you think about it, that, that sounds pretty noble. Because if, if what they're saying is, even though there's no real answers, we have to live like there actually are some real answers. We, we, actually, we, we need to live as if there really is right and wrong, even if we can't figure out what's right and wrong. So the idea of be strong, be moral, be generous, be good. You, 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 in a sense, you, you got to live that way or the world's going to be intolerable and, and life is going to be intolerable. There are no real answers, but let's live like there is. The second school would be the Epicureans. And uh, the, the author suggests that you could summarize their perspective this way. There's no meaning to life, so live it up. There are no answers. The only thing to do is have a good time. Like, live for pleasure. Now, now I recognize that the summary of both of these schools of thought, this is, this is very, you got to give me some grace here. This is very simplistic. But generally speaking, the Stoics were saying, there's no meaning to life, but we got to have something. The Epicureans are saying more, uh, more on the end of the spectrum that says there's no meaning to life. We should enjoy it. There should be a level of, of pleasure. There, there, uh, there's uh, some hedonistic components to the Epicureans. And if you think about those two general categories, those two options are really modern, aren't they? Th those two options exist in our culture right now. Uh, I looked up the hashtag, do good, on, on Instagram this weekend. And there were 2.8 million posts on Instagram that used the hashtag, do good. It's kind of a stoic way of seeing the world. And then I looked up the hashtag, which I know other people don't love this phrase, but YOLO. Um, you only live once. And there's 31 million Instagram posts that use the hashtag YOLO. And, and it's, it's just, they're, they're just hashtags, but there's just little examples of the fact that our world often does think this way. There, there's, uh, there are companies that are orienting themselves to doing good in the world. Like they, they, they want to have some meaning or some value and they want to they do good. You, you, if you interviewed them, they might say, no, we don't actually think there's absolute uh, like truth. We don't think there's actually real, clear, knowable meaning. But we think it's important that you do good out there. And you could talk to someone else. And they're like, enjoy it. You only go around once. You only live once. What's the point of putting up with pain? What's the point in putting, why, why take the hard road? Why do the hard thing? Like, you should learn to live it up. Learn to enjoy it. You only live once. These are pretty modern conversations. So John is intentionally using logos because it was part of the philosophical debates of first century Greece. Yeah, 
He's using logos because it associates with the Jewish mind. Yes, but it's also part of the debates of the 21st century right now uh, in the West. These are ideas that exist right now in our current moment. In other words, we're asking the same questions. Our, our current culture may have some new dynamics. There's been scientific discoveries and other things, but it is forcing the same kinds of conclusion. Many, many people are coming to the conclusion that there's no meaning. So what now? There's no meaning. So what now? There is no logos. There is no logic. What do we do? Well, why do we need the word? Why do we need the logos? What do you think the reason of life is? What do you think the reason for life is? When John says that Jesus is the word, in the beginning was the word, and the word was with God, and the word was God. Verse 14, verse 14 he says, the word came down, came to this earth. What John is saying is, there is a logos, but it's not an idea. It's a person. It's a person to be known. It's a person to serve. It's a person to love. The Logos includes ideas and principles, but it's infinitely more than just ideas. It's not an it. It's a person. And John is speaking into both of these cultures, both of these listeners, to the Jewish person and to the Greek. And he's saying there's something more going on than just an idea. If you're a Jewish person, you think of the word as written word. Well, okay, but there's more to it than just the written word. If you're a Greek person and you say, boy, there's this, this logic, there's this, there's this philosophy, there's this idea that holds everything together, John's like, in a sense, you're right, but it's not an it. It's a person. The story of Christmas is that God ripped the roof off the earth and climbed in. What John is saying is that even though Christianity answers philosophical questions, it's not just a philosophy. It's not just an idea. It's a power. It's a power that covers every aspect of life. And if you look at John chapter 1, verses 2 through 5, especially verse 4, look at what he says. He says the word is life. He says that that's where you find life. What, what, what is Jesus bringing? What, what is the logos bringing? What is, what is this logic, this reason? What, what is it bringing? Bringing life. That, that, that's, that's what Jesus showed up to do, was to actually bring real life. John is saying that Jesus can be your life. He can be your alpha and your omega, the beginning and the end. That doesn't mean it's like bookends where it just he shows up here and he shows up here. It's saying he's the whole thing. That from the start to the finish, it's all about him. He's the logic. He's the reason. He's the center. It's all about him. There's multiple passages in the Bible where we could turn to where the writers and the Bible are telling us that. He's the point of all of this. He's the climax of all of this. It's all about him. Is he yours? Is he your logos? Is he your reason? Is he your personal reference point? Is he your main reference point in all your decisions? Is he what you're living for? Is he your highest priority? You know, the Bible is actually unashamed in calling you to think like that. 
actually declaring him the Lord of your life. That unless you're willing to lose your life and follow him, you'll never gain your life. Yeah, the, 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 those things, you know the audacity to say something like that? And yet the Bible's packed full of comments like that. Is he your reason? Is he your logos? If he isn't, then you're going to have to manufacture one. You're going to have to come up with a reason. And it is a hard thing to do. Because we need a reason to wake up in the morning. We, we need a reason to like go through all of this. We need a reason to endure. There, there's got to be a purpose to your life. And I'm not a philosopher. But you know, if you read any philosophy, you, you're going to quickly see that philosophers have been consumed with this question. The, the, the general public is scared of it. Or maybe Heraclitus is right. None of us care. And we just kind of trot through life and, and, and try to, try to you know, uh, push that all down and don't want to think about it much. But the philosophers throughout history have been asking this question like crazy. What's the purpose of life? What's your reason for getting out of bed? Your soul needs that answer. Your, your soul is begging for that answer. You know, Greek philosophers, if you try to summarize them, I mean, they, they seem to be saying, you can't really know what the logos, what the logic, what the reason is. Maybe someday something will change, but I wouldn't count on it. Well, guess what? Something did change. Hundreds of years after Plato, hundreds of years after Heraclitus, something dramatic changed. While the philosophical debate was, I mean, regarding Logos, I mean, it's still raging today. It was raging when John wrote this gospel. Maybe you've heard of the Chinese philosophy Tao. It's the same, the, the, these philosophies, these questions of what's the reason? What's, what's the logic? What's the point? It, it's, you, you find it just littered throughout history. It's a constant question. And John writes, in the beginning was the Logos. In the beginning was the logic. It was Christ. Now look, I know we all have heard a lot of opinions on what the meaning of life is. It can kind of feel like a group discussion. I don't know, have you been part of book, book discussions where basically you sit down and you're going to discuss the book and everybody's got an opinion on what the book means and because of our current cultural moment, like no one's ever wrong and everyone thinks like, oh, that's a, that's a good take. And even the teacher will say, that's, a, that's an interesting take. Everybody's, everybody's opinion is kind of equally valid. It can feel that way with the meaning of life or the purpose of life. But what would happen if you're there discussing a poem or discussing a song or discussing a book and everybody's got their own perspective on what the author of that meant? What would happen if suddenly the author of that song or the author of that poem, or the author of that book, walked into the room. And they said, uh, let me tell you why I wrote this poem. Let me tell you what the meaning of this song is. Let me tell you what this book's about. If the author walked in and said that, then wouldn't that be end of discussion? Wouldn't, wouldn't that be the end of the discussion? Because the authority comes from the author. And when the author speaks, Nobody really has anything else to say. You, 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 can you imagine looking at the author and being like, 
no, that's, that's not really what you meant. No, no one would do that. If the author spoke, John is offering to us this idea that the author of life has spoken. Now, now one of the cheesiest comments at Christmas is, Jesus is the reason for the season. Now, someone here might have that on their sweater. And if you do, I don't mean to offend you. It sounds cheesy. It sounds like something Ned Flanders, you know, from, from The Simpsons would say. But maybe we shouldn't roll our eyes. Because that's actually declaring something deeper and truer than we realize. Jesus is the reason for the season. Not, not, not just the Christmas season. Like, he's the reason for all of it. He's the reason for all of life. That is what John is putting in front of us. That God sent the reason the logos, the logic, to live with us and then to die for us. John knows that we need a reason, and John knows that we need Christ. John is saying that the ultimate author has told us the reason for life. So the question is, do you believe that? You know, the, 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 the one word title for today's sermon was faith. We haven't talked a lot about faith at all in this sermon. But this is how John starts his gospel account in John chapter 1. Do you know how he ends it? At the end of chapter 20, second to last chapter, at the end of chapter 20, he says, I write all of these things so that you might believe that Jesus is the Christ. That, that Jesus is actually the one who can save you. That, that, that's why I wrote all of this. He starts off by setting in front of us you want to know what the logic of all of this is? You want to know what the reason for life is? You want to know what the purpose of life is? It's Christ. The, the, author is, the author of life is telling us what the point of life is. And John ends up writing 21 chapters, and it's like he just sets it in front of you. He sets it in front of me. And, and the question is, is, do you believe this? There are plenty of people who do not believe what John is saying here. There are plenty of people that do not agree that Jesus is the point of life, that he is the Christ, that he is the one who will save you, that he is worth orienting your life around. There are plenty of people who do not believe that. But John, in a sense, wants you to answer that question. Do you believe that? You see, it's a faith walk. You, you could have read John chapter 1 before the service today, and you could have read that chapter, those few verses, and been like, yep. But you, you know that's not fully provable, right? You know that if you take the scientific method to this, you, you, you can't prove that. It, it is a faith walk. This is stepping out and actually making a choice to believe that what is written here is true. Later in the New Testament, in Hebrews chapter 11, the author of Hebrews says this is what faith is. That faith is the assurance of things hoped for, the conviction of things unseen. You know, the biblical word for hope is this confident expectation of rescue, this confident expectation of salvation. And the author of Hebrews says, here's what faith is. Faith is the assurance of that hope. It's confidence of things unseen. It's a faith walk to believe that the author of life spoke. 
It's a faith walk to believe that Jesus really is the word. John is telling us that God has revealed the ultimate reason for life, but it requires you believing God about that. It requires you actually putting your faith in that reality, even without all the data you might want, even though it's not scientifically provable. It's the invitation of the Bible. In in John chapter 3, there's this incredible account, the most famous verse in the entire Bible, where, where Jesus has a conversation with a religious guy. And the religious guy says, Jesus, you're out here teaching things, and I don't, I, I don't track. Like, I don't, I don't get what you're saying. And Jesus says, yeah, like, you, you have to believe on me and let me give you new life. You, you have to believe on me and let me make you alive. When John in John chapter 1 says that this logic, this logos, this reason, when he showed up, he showed up to bring life. That's what Jesus says to Nicodemus in John chapter 3. I'll do that to you. You put your faith in me and I'll give you life. And not just life here, life eternal. It's the good news of Jesus coming into the world that the Logos actually showed up. If that's a fair summary of the Greek philosophers, that there's a, there's a Logos, but who, yeah, good luck figuring it out. Something might change, but I doubt it. Well, something did change. The logo showed up. And now the invitation on the table for you is, do you believe? John says, I wrote all of this, that you might believe that Jesus is the Christ. We end our services by an invitation to come to the table, to, to take the bread and the cup. And before we pray, I, just, I do want to invite you to remember what these elements represent. Bread. It's the body of Christ. That's, what, that's, the, that's the significance of Christmas, the incarnation, that God took on a human body and dwelled among us. And as you take the bread this morning, remember that this, is, this, is, this represents the body of Christ. And then the cup is his blood spilled for us. Why did he take on a human body? Why, why did he come here? In part so that he could take the sin of the world upon his shoulders when he went to the cross in order to bring us to God, in order to to make the way. It's what we do when we take the bread and when we take the cup. The invitation, the invitation from God is to put your faith in Christ. And if you have done that, then come and eat the bread and drink the cup and remember again, receive again, see again this good news about who Jesus is and what he has done. You know, I reference the fact, every Sunday, we, we reference the fact that there's communion prayers in, in the bulletin. And there's nothing magical about those words. What those words do, what those prayers do, is they invite you into a conversation that we hope you keep having with the God of heaven. And, and there's, there's two prayers in, in our bulletin. One of those is a prayer for those searching for truth. And the other is a prayer of belief. And I just, I want to read the prayer for those searching for truth uh, and, and just in, invite you into this journey. If you're here and you're like, man, like, I think I've heard John 1 before, or maybe I've never heard that before. Maybe I've thought of Jesus as the logic of life. Maybe I've never thought of Jesus as the logic of life. If you're saying, I'm not sure what I think about that, 
I'm not sure if that actually resonates with me. I'm not sure if I actually believe it. Well, here's a prayer, a start of a conversation uh, between you and God uh, on this front. And if you would like to talk more about this, I will be in the front of this auditorium at the end of the service, and I would love to talk with you about this, this uh, idea of Jesus as the reason for, 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 the, for life. This is the prayer. Lord Jesus, you claim to be the way, the truth, and the life. If what you claim is true, please guide me, teach me, and open to me the reality of who you are. Grant that I might be undaunted by the cost of following you as I consider the reasons for doing so. Give me an understanding of you that is coherent, convincing, and that leads to the life that you promise. Amen. That would be a way of summarizing the Gospel of John. That's what John's doing. John's laying it right in front of us and saying, here's why Jesus showed up. Here's what he came to bring. Here's what he did throughout his life. Here's what he did on the cross. I write all of this so that you might believe that he is the Son of God, that he is the Christ. Do you? Let's pray. And as I do, servers, uh, please come forward. God, thank you for this text, and thank you for these few verses that for us uh, might sound uh, like standalone ideas, that the Word in the beginning was the Word. But God, we recognize that there's a, a lot of tentacles to that phrase, to the Jewish listener, to the Greek listener. God, these ideas of what the meaning of life is, they resonate with us to this very day. So many questions, so many unanswered questions about what we're doing here. Why all this? What's the point? God, maybe we have the temptation, the desire to want this to be uh, so provable. We want this to be something that doesn't take faith. We want this to be something <clears throat> that can just be two plus two equals four. But that's not the way this works. It's actually a transfer of trust. It's actually placing our, our hope in, in a person to bring us the life that we so long for. God, if, if that's uh, something stirring in, in any of the hearts in this room, I, I pray that you would, would help us, uh, give us the courage uh, to, to, keep, to keep walking towards that, to keep wrestling with those questions, maybe to even trust you enough to, to look into this book uh, to find the answers. In Jesus' name we pray, amen.